Episode 77, The Republic of Texas. Oh yeah, that's George Strait. He's a Texan. He's also one of the top-selling recording artists of all time, and that's my favorite song of his, and it might be the best country song ever. Sort of ironic that here we are talking about the time that Texas became an independent republic, independent from Mexico, right at the same time that there's a big conflict right on the Texas-Mexico border. And Texas is apparently resisting the U.S. federal government's efforts to open the border to whatever drug smuggling and human trafficking invaders want to walk in. I'll have to come back to that in a bit. Well, people are proud of where they're from. But in the U.S., being from Texas seems to take it to a whole other level. And I have to say, just for transparency, that I am from Texas. And I currently live in Texas, although I wasn't actually born here moved here when I was six, so I can say I'm from Texas. I've lived here most of my life, but I wasn't born here. However, my wife and my three daughters were all born here, so they are all native Texans and seventh or eighth generation native Texans at that. Anyway, this episode is about the Republic of Texas. Texas is not the only state to have been a republic before it came into the United States. Vermont was also briefly a republic from 1777 to 1799, when it became the 14th state admitted to the Union. But no one else, no other country, ever actually recognized Vermont as an independent country. Hawaii also was an independent country before it was annexed by the U.S. government in 1898. Hawaii, by the way, did not want to be annexed by the U.S. government. But we are talking about Texas. Texas has a bit of a unique history. As you may have noticed, Texans are quite proud of that history. So Texas gets its own episode, the only state that gets its own episode. I guess you could count Athens, which was a city-state, which got its own episode back in episode 9, but none of the other U.S. states get their own episode. Sorry, Oklahoma. The name Texas comes from an Indian word. There was an Indian tribe called the Caddo Indians who lived along the Upper Red River and its tributaries. That's the area where the Texas-Arkansas border now is. The Caddo tribe had a word for friends that the Spanish translated as Tejas, and somehow that whole region became known as Tejas, which became Texas when English speakers began to use the word. Now, Spain did not put a lot of effort into colonizing Texas, though they did start mission stations in several places, including Galveston, Corpus Christi, and San Antonio, and other places, and those would grow to be important towns. But from a Spanish perspective, there wasn't much going on in the Texas region. It was kind of a backwater. When Spain in Europe was conquered by Napoleon, France kind of claimed the area of Texas, but didn't do anything with it either. And the whole area eventually reverted back to Spanish control after Napoleon was defeated. But I say Spanish control, but Spain didn't really have much control over the area since they hadn't ever really spent much time setting up outposts there. So 
adventurous American settlers began to move into parts of East and Central Texas, setting up small towns, often near the Spanish mission stations. At first, this was on a fairly small scale, and it was mostly ignored by the Spanish authorities, because one of the things about Texas is, if you hadn't heard, it's really big. So there's a lot of unoccupied land, and so people came in and settled, and no one really noticed. There were, of course, Indian tribes there, but at first, the Indians and the settlers mostly got along. Now, this is going to change dramatically, especially when the settlers start to encroach on Apache and Comanche land farther out to the west, as those tribes were much more fierce in their resistance. The whole Spanish region of Mexico, which included Texas at the time, following the lead of the Spanish regions of South America, started to fight for its independence from Spain back in about 1810. Mexico started a war in 1810 for its independence, finally fully winning independence in 1821. And at that point, Mexico, which started off as an empire, considered Texas to be part of its territory. Now that empire ended pretty quickly and it became a republic, but the new Republic of Mexico also claimed Texas. Mexico claimed land that went up into Texas, into New Mexico, Arizona, even parts of California, even stretched up into bits of Colorado. But though they had claimed the land and it was theirs on a map, they had no control over it. Again, most of that was Comanche or Apache land, and they did not tolerate other tribes or Europeans. Most of that land was effectively under Indian control. And the parts of Mexico that weren't under Indian control weren't really controlled by Mexico either. That's particularly East Texas. In fact, by 1821, there were more Anglo settlers in Texas than there were Mexican settlers. Now, I should say that there was briefly a very short-lived Republic of Texas for about six months back in 1813, when a group of American settlers had declared a republic, and they even drafted a constitution. But that was soon crushed by a joint Mexican-Spanish army, and a lot of the settlers and militia were killed. But this did create a deep distrust within Texas for the government way down in Mexico City. From 1810 to 1821, and then continuing on into the 1830s, American settlers continued to move into Texas. One of the big draws of Texas was the mild climate and the fact that land was almost free. In fact, in some places, it was completely free. Different groups of settlers, usually organized by someone back east, came and settled in regions of east, central, and coastal Texas. Some of these groups had negotiated a deal with the Mexican government, and some hadn't. In 1819, Eli Harris and James Long led a group of over 100 men into Texas. They did not have a deal with the Mexican government. They just marched in, and they began to try to set up a settlement near Nacogdoches. The group sent emissaries to Jean Lafitte, who was the pirate who was occupying Galveston Island at the time. I mentioned him back in the War of 1812 episode. But Lafitte was actually spying for the Spanish in return for them not bothering him on Galveston. Lafitte did not help Eli Harris and James Long, the rest of the Nacogdoches group. And so without his help, they were harassed by the Mexican government. And so many of them returned to the United States, including one man who will come back again, who is named Jim Bowie. In 1821, a larger group, known as the Old 300, came to Central Texas under the leadership of Stephen F. Austin. Now, they had, indeed, negotiated the right to settle, and the right included settlements between San Antonio and the coast along the Brazos River. Now, for those of you who aren't lucky enough to be from Texas, that's a really good stretch of land. 
The Brazos is a good-sized river running year-round, moving a lot of water, and the land around it is actually pretty fertile. It's good ranch land as well. So they began to settle there in the towns of San Felipe, Brazoria, and Washington on the Brazos, and other places as well. In 1824, the Mexican government was under the control of General Antonio de Padua Maria Sereno Lopez de Santa Ana y Perez de Lebron. You actually have to take a breath in the middle to say his full name. He's generally known as General Santa Ana. And once he became president, he became basically a dictator, and he began to make drastic changes in the law of the Republic of Mexico. He repealed some of the laws written by the earlier Republican legislature in an effort to centralize control of the whole country. One of the laws that he was considering was making it mandatory for everyone within the territory of Mexico to be a Roman Catholic. Now, the Texans, most of whom were originally from some part of the United States, did not like having their liberties curtailed at all, and especially did not like being told what religion they had to be. So they began to organize their own militias, and they sent representatives to the town of San Felipe, which was on the Brazos, just to the northwest of where Houston is today. There's a state park there today where I go camping sometimes. That's kind of funny, actually. This is the first part of this short walk that has happened anywhere near me. I guess we won't get this close to my current world again until we come back to Houston to talk about NASA and the space program. That's only 140 years away, though. Anyway, this group that came together in San Felipe was called the Convention of 1832, and it was presided over by Stephen F. Austin. And the convention is really the first step towards Texas independence. The convention passed some resolutions, including a resolution calling for an independent state, but it stopped short of actually declaring independence. But they did vote to create more militias, and this is going to lead to some fighting. The first skirmish between Mexican army regulars and the Texas militia took place near Gonzales on the Guadalupe River, east of San Antonio, it's south of I-10, which obviously wasn't built yet. The town of Gonzales had been loaned a bronze cannon by the Mexican government to protect them from Indian raids. Well, Santa Ana sent a troop of about 50 men to Gonzales to reclaim the cannon. The Texans, hearing they were coming, called out the local militia, and they stopped the Mexican troops from crossing the Guadalupe. Now, once the militia was together, they hoisted the famous Come and Take It flag, which had those words on a yellow background emblazoned over a cannon. Do you remember where that quote comes from? Yes, episode 8, where we talked about the 300 Spartans under King Leonidas, who, when told by King Xerxes and his army of several hundred thousand to lay down their arms, said, come and take them. That's still the baddest quote of all time. And the Texans used it in their first battle against the Mexican army. Anyway, the Texans snuck across the Guadalupe at night, and at dawn on October 2nd, 1832, they attacked the Mexican camp. Well, attacked is kind of an exaggeration, because what they did is they fired at the camp from behind a line of trees. But still, it's a group of militia fighting against Mexican army regulars, so it was sort of a battle. The disputed cannon was even fired a few times. The Mexicans, who were under orders to not engage, retreated. Two Mexican soldiers were killed, and one Texan got a bloody nose when he fell off his horse. So much for all Texans being cowboys. But the Texans made it out to be a huge victory, and despite it being a pretty small-scale battle, it was actually a big deal. Sympathy for an independent Texas now exploded all over the region, and news of the battle even got all the way to Washington, D.C. After a few preliminary gatherings, in March of 1836, 
the Convention of 1836 came to order. And on March 2nd, Texas declared itself independent of Mexico. Now we just need to do that again with Washington. In September of 1836, Sam Houston was elected as the first president of the New Republic of Texas, and he appointed Stephen F. Austin as his Secretary of State. But Austin died only a couple of months later. Now, Sam Houston had previously been the governor of Tennessee, and he had come to Texas in 1832. Houston was born in Virginia in 1859, and his family moved to Tennessee about 12 years later. At one point when they lived in Tennessee, he ran away from home, and he lived with the Creek Indians for about three years. After that, he came back to Anglo society, and he later helped the U.S. government expel the Creeks from Tennessee. And after that, he was elected governor. Now later, after Texas gets absorbed into the United States, Houston eventually becomes the seventh governor of Texas, making him the only person in U.S. history to have been the governor of two different U.S. states. He was also a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Tennessee, making him also the only U.S. citizen who is part of the U.S. House of Representatives and the president of a completely different country. Unique guy. Look him up on Google. He looks just like some average grandpa. Well, Houston was the president, but the republic wasn't really quite established. Texas claimed most of the land north of the Rio Grande, but again, they didn't really control it all. Comanches, you know. And Mexico was not okay with Texas being independent. So they sent General Antonio de Padua Maria Severino Lopez de Santa Ana y Perez de Lebron to go teach those Texans who was boss, or jefe. So Santa Ana brought an army of about 7,000 men total, which was a huge number of troops for that area, and he marched towards San Antonio, which had been taken by the Texans. The Texans, hearing that the army was coming, fortified a Spanish mission, they had about 150 men there and about 20 cannons, including the cannon from Gonzales. You may remember the mission that they fortified. It's called the Alamo. The Alamo was a Spanish mission station. It was built to the south of San Antonio, although now it's in the middle of San Antonio. It was built as a place to try to bring Christianity to the local Indians. It included a big stone chapel, which is now the building that most people think of when they visualize the Alamo, and there was a stone wall that surrounded a substantial courtyard. There were barracks built into the walls and a couple of small watchtowers on the corner. It had been abandoned by the Spanish and had become a garrison for soldiers as far back as 1803. As a fort, it was relatively defensible because of the stone wall all the way around and because the defenders had, like I said, about 20 cannons. But Santa Ana also had cannons and he had about 7,000 soldiers to the 150 who were defending the Alamo. Now we have to talk a little bit about the men defending the Alamo. This is quite the group. First of all, the leader of the group of 150 men was William B. Travis. Travis had left his son and pregnant wife in South Carolina to try to find land and make some money in order to pay off debt that he had accumulated back in South Carolina. And he did that by going to Texas. He was a lawyer by trade and he set up a law practice in Anahuac, Texas. While there, he joined the Texas militia and eventually became a recruiter. So he recruited eventually about 30 men, and he and those 30 men showed up at the Alamo, and thus he became the commander of the militia, which I said grew to around 150 men. Once the camp was surrounded, Travis sent out a letter asking for help, which was snuck out by a courier, and that letter said, 
Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death, he wrote that in capitals. William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel Commander. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and got into the walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. I think that means head of beef. No one was able to respond to Travis's letter. It was a pretty impressive letter, though, and shows the honor of the men who are defending the Alamo. There were a few groups who had arrived before the Alamo was surrounded, though. One of those groups that arrived prior to that was a group commanded by James Bowie, who I mentioned earlier. He arrived with another 30 men. Bowie was from Kentucky, and he had made a reputation for himself by being in a large brawl in Louisiana, where, despite having been shot and stabbed, he killed several other men with a large handmade knife. You should look up the Bowie knife. It's quite the thing. Bowie commanded a group of volunteers, while Travis commanded the official militia soldiers. And then there was Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. Quick bio of Davy Crockett. He was born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, the greenest state in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree, he killed him a bar when he was only three. If you remember that song from the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday nights on ABC, you are officially old. And I remember that song. Anyway, Crockett was indeed from Tennessee, sort of. He was actually born in 1786 in a disputed part of western North Carolina, which was at the time trying to incorporate itself as the new state of Franklin, but instead that area became part of Tennessee. Crockett, like Sam Houston, ran away from home in his teens, and he lived in the woods, and he eventually joined a cattle driving team. He supposedly did kill a lot of bears, including stabbing one in the heart after he had run out of bullets. He served for a while eventually in the Tennessee legislature and then was elected as one of the Tennessee representatives to the U.S. Congress. In fact, he joined the U.S. Congress just after Sam Houston had left. In 1835, he narrowly lost his re-election to the U.S. Congress and at the end of his term, he uttered his famous quote, You may all go to hell and I will go to Texas. In 1836, he and about 65 other men came to Texas, and they arrived at the Alamo on February 8th. But it was on February 23rd that Santa Ana arrived. His troops at that point surrounded the Alamo. Crockett led a group of three men who tried to sneak through the Mexican lines to get reinforcement. And on the night of March 4th, they brought back the reinforcements, including a group of men under the command of James Fannin. Fifty of Fannin's men not Fannin himself, but 50 of his men, came back to the Alamo with Davy Crockett. 
Fanon himself was later killed by Santa Anna's troops in the massacre at Goliad. At dawn on March 6th, 1836, the Mexican army attacked the Alamo. The defenders, knowing that they would not receive reinforcements, fought to the last man. Bowie, who had become extremely sick, died fighting in his bed, his knife in his hands. Crockett, out of bullets, swinging his musket like a club, died in a breach in the south wall of the mission. The battle lasted only 90 minutes, and at the end, the Mexican army rounded up the few survivors and executed them on the spot. None of the defenders of the Alamo survived. The accounts we have of the battle come from a slave and a female servant and some of the Mexican soldiers. The 150 Texans killed around 500 Mexican soldiers. It was an incredibly brave last stand, and it's rightly glorified in history as being one of the most valiant and honorable battles of all time, but it did little to slow down Santa Ana. But what it did do was galvanize resistance all across the rest of Texas and even in America. Cries of, remember the Alamo, were heard in every subsequent battle, and they have become part of the lore of Texas. Santa Ana, for his part, headed to the east looking for more Texan militias. He split his army up into two groups, and the settlers in the region ran from the armies. And that evacuation in front of his armies is known as the runaway scrape. Sam Houston gathered what soldiers he could find, and they marched out in search of Santa Ana. Santa Ana, in one of his groups, was headed towards Galveston. On April 16th, two Texan soldiers captured a couple of Mexican scouts who had with them a copy of Santa Ana's plans. The two Texans brought the scouts and the map back to Sam Houston. Realizing that Santa Ana was close by and that he had split up his forces, Sam Houston rallied the troops, about 800 men, and he set out for Santa Ana's camp. Now, Santa Ana had set up camp near the place where Buffalo Bayou meets the San Jacinto River in a sort of flat plain that was really actually a very bad place to set up camp because there were two rivers on each side and no place to retreat. Sam Houston and the Texans found the camp on April 20th, and there was a brief skirmish. The Mexicans retreated back to their camp, and into the evening and into the night, they began to form defensive emplacements. Santa Ana expected a Texan attack early in the morning of the 21st, but the Texans did not attack. As the day wore on, the Mexicans, who were weary from having worked late into the night on their defensive positions, became tired. Santa Ana gave permission for some of them to have a siesta. Now, normally, I am all in favor of siestas, which I think is the best thing that Spain has ever invented, that and tapas, but in this situation, it was a really bad idea. It gave the soldiers the impression that there was no imminent threat, and they really let their guard down. At 4.30 in the afternoon, the Texans attacked. Now this, I have to say, was very unorthodox. You never attack at 4.30 in the afternoon. You always attack in the morning. I mean, that's in the art of war or something. I'm pretty sure it's in being a general for dummies, even. You always attack in the morning. Anyway, the Texans attacked at 4.30 in the afternoon, and it was either brilliant or a lucky accident that happened because the Texans were just not actually professional soldiers. But the late afternoon attack caught the Mexicans in the middle of their siesta, totally unready to defend their camp. The Texans tore through the Mexican camp in minutes. The battle did not last long. But the Texans were not very forgiving. 
In the end, 650 Mexican soldiers were killed, many more wounded, and about 300 were captured. The Texans lost 11 men, and about 30 others were wounded, including Sam Houston, who took a very bad wound to the ankle. But Santa Ana escaped, and he ran off into the swampland nearby where he hid out. Now, he was found a day later dressed in the coat of a private, not a general, but his identity was given away when he was brought back to the other prisoners who all saluted him. Duh, you don't do that when your general's being brought back as a prisoner. Anyway, now the Texans had Santa Ana, and that meant that the war for Texas independence was basically over. While he was a prisoner, Santa Ana acknowledged the new Republic of Texas and even signed a treaty. But he did it knowing that the Mexican government would never agree to a treaty signed by a prisoner of war. And that's exactly what happened. The Texans let Santa Ana go because he promised to promote the idea of Texas as a sovereign nation in front of the Mexican legislature when he got back. So in the end, Mexico never did recognize Texas as a sovereign nation. But in 1837, the United States did. It was one of Andrew Jackson's last actions as a president. But it meant that Texas had some standing as its own as a sovereign country. Texas hunted around for a new capital city, starting with Washington on the Brazos, and eventually ending up in a nearly new settlement on the Colorado River that was renamed Austin after Stephen F. Austin. The first president of Texas was David G. Burnett, followed by Sam Houston. Then there was Mirabeau Lamar, and then Sam Houston again. The last president was Anson Jones, and during Anson Jones' administration, Texas and the United States reached an agreement whereby Texas would be annexed by the U.S. Now at this point, Mexico finally showed some willingness to recognize Texas as a sovereign nation, but by then it was too late. See, Mexico didn't want that area to become part of the United States. They preferred it to be Texas, but it was too late at this point. In 1845, Texas joined the United States as the 28th state. Texas came in as a slave state, although there weren't that many slaves in Texas at the time. Texas joined the Union by a treaty that gave it some unique provisions. First, Texas could decide to divide itself into a total of five states later on, if it wanted to increase its representation in the U.S. government. Second, Texas kept state control of all its public land, so all the land, and especially the mineral rights, were Texas's state property, not the property of the U.S. government, which was the norm for states that had previously been territories. That's going to be important later when oil is discovered near Pasadena. Also, Texas retained the right to fly its state flag at the same height as the U.S. flag, as long as they're on separate flagpoles. Now, if they're on the same pole, the U.S. flag is supposed to be on the top. And as I understand it now, in terms of the U.S. flag, the federal government is considering making a law to fly the flags of Ukraine, Israel, and the People's Republic of China above the U.S. flag, since that seems to be their current allegiances. Anyway, in Texas, we'll continue to fly our flag at the top. Also, I have to say, of all the flags in the world, Texas has by far the coolest flag. When Texas joined the Union, it claimed territory that included parts of New Mexico and Colorado, but the current borders of Texas were settled in 1850. Texas also has the coolest outline of all the states. Sorry, Colorado and Wyoming rectangles. And don't even get me started about Oklahoma. After its incorporation into the United States, immigration into Texas increased dramatically. 
Now, this is going to further bother the Mexican government, who retaliated by sending waves of immigrants across the border under the Biden administration. No, no, really. The Mexican government responded by not agreeing to the Rio Grande as a border and staged some incursions into the disputed territory north of the Rio Grande, which is eventually going to lead to the Mexican-American War. But before we look at that, we need to take a quick jump into the present and talk about the current border crisis on the Texas-Mexico border, because that does tell us a lot about how the world works today. As I'm writing this, there is a bit of a standoff going on between the government of Texas and the U.S. federal government about whether or not to let approximately 2 million undocumented and not legal immigrants simply walk into the United States. Now, that 2 million number comes from the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol website as the official number of undocumented immigrants in 2023. So you can reasonably assume that the actual number of people coming in was a lot higher. That's over 5,000 people per day, and some days it's closer to like 10,000. Anyone involved in any kind of social services work nowadays will tell you that these are not honest asylum seekers coming across the border. They are victims of human trafficking. They are drug dealers sending mules. They are agents of foreign governments. According to CNN, of all places, over 31,000 Chinese, almost all males, were picked up trying to cross the U.S. border in 2023. And again, that's just the numbers of the ones that were picked up. So the actual number is, again, way higher. Why are 3,000 Chinese per month trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border? That's not immigration. That's an invasion. And the state of Texas has started to try to enforce its own borders by putting up fences, barbed wire, and a floating barricade in the Rio Grande. Again and again, the U.S. federal government has opposed these measures to protect the border and ordered them to be taken down. Why? Well, it seems like the U.S. Border Patrol's job should be to protect the border. But right now, the, that particular federal agency seems bent on opening every door. Now, I should say, I'm fully in favor of legal migration. Anyone who wants to go through the legal migration process and then become a legal, contributing member of American society should be encouraged to do so. America already has, by far, the most liberal immigration policy in the world. I myself could not wander into Mexico and expect to just be able to stay there as a permanent resident. I couldn't go to Canada or the UK or China or just about anywhere in the world and walk in and expect to not only stay, but to be taken care of by the welfare apparatus of that country. So why is our current federal government allowing and even seeming to encourage this? I honestly don't know. I can only speculate on the reasons behind it, but it does seem to even the casual observer that there is a concerted effort underway to try to destabilize the United States and Texas. Why? I don't know, but I can guess that it's all because someone out there hates our original core values, which include the idea that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that, by the way, implies the belief in and acknowledgement of a creator, and maybe that's what's all behind it. I don't know. It all seems kind of evil to me. And I mentioned back in several of the episodes about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that one of the core beliefs of most of the Founding Fathers was that mankind is sinful and was by nature turned away from God. And so the reason for them creating checks and balances and a limited government was that men are prone to evil and thus prone to tyranny. And, by the way, 
the drive to be tyrannical would perfectly explain the concerted effort to destabilize the United States and Texas. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on the Texas-Mexico border because we'll be coming back there in a couple episodes when we get to the Mexican-American War. But next, we need to travel back to jolly old England and take a look at the empire upon which the sun never sets. England under Queen Victoria. So 